Welcome everybody to episode 167 of the Metabilis 2 podcast, which features David and Ben. And tonight we are going to address the Leela years of the Tom Baker doctor yes. residency, I guess. Resonant yeah. doctory. Yeah, and we're going to whiz through the Leela years pretty quickly because we, as regular listeners will know, we actually did those quite recently. So, um, Within in, the last and couple in years, detail. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. I can't remember what that was now. Yeah, so I'm looking at our back catalog, and we did this three years ago in August. No way! August of 2017. Three years ago? It seems like yesterday. What the yeah. hell? Yeah, so it uh, begins on episode 53. So for our listener, if they Whoa. really are that interested, go back and give a listen to episode 53. Wow. And that's the face of evil, and it goes all the way through. Are you sure that wasn't the first time that we... Because when we started this out, kind of going through episode by episode, didn't we? Yeah, that is the uh, Leela retrospective. No, but didn't we do another Leela retrospective? I don't... I mean, didn't we do a specific one? Specifically uh, on Leela? We did yeah. each episode by episode. I can't remember if we did. We didn't do a sit down just on Louise Jameson. Did I we? think we did. I, th- mm, I think we did. I don't um, know. <laughs> okay. okay. Someone who's a bigger fan I of us. I don't really listen to this podcast. Yes. So. <laughs> anyway, someone who's actually a bigger fan of us than we are, write in and tell us what we're talking about. <laughs> that would be helpful. Thank you. There must be someone. There must be someone who's who loves this podcast so much that they got everything categorized mm. in a way that we kind of haven't at this point, which is fine. Yeah, I'm just going through our shows, and 53 through 61 was the Leela uh, individual okay. flashback episodes. All right. Okay. Fair. Yep. Yeah. All right. I don't doubt you. You're the man. All right. So, um. So yeah. <laughs> if we're gonna keep this under an hour, we've just blown through. Uh, I know. Okay. Minutes uh, of uh, banter. Just inconsequential banter. But I mm-hmm. mean, I think that's what people, some people tune in for that, don't they? Uh, I don't know. Or do they? I, ha- I have no metric of if anyone is even listening. So maybe. Let maybe us know in the a, comments. A, a, a plea, a plea to our audience to let us know somehow. Yeah. Uh, probably Twitter would probably be the best way to get a hold of us. Yeah. And... Tweet, tweet us. How many minutes of just inconsequential banter do you prefer? <laughs> at the beginning of each episode compared to hard-hitting, incisive analysis of your favorite show. Let us know. Mm-hmm. Which hopefully is Doctor Who, because that's what we... Yeah. I keep thinking we're doing a Good Life podcast, but <laughs> we'll see. Well, I think the Good Life podcast, I think, will be mainly you talking. <laughs> but I could chip in. I yeah. could chip in. I mean, I'd have to get the Good Life on DVD, and then I'd have to... How many episodes of the Good Life were there? It was four seasons. Four seasons. So, okay. and I think each six episodes, so six times four, what is that, 24? Well, that's not that many. I, 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 I think there was a Christmas remember, special, too. I seem to remember the good life going on for, like, years, but maybe it didn't. Yeah. You know what we should do? We mm. should do, like, a combined good life and survivors podcast. <laughs> Just go into Just, the 1970s. Mid, yeah, exactly, because it's all, it's all about self-sufficiency. Mm-hmm. And we, each week, we do one episode of survivors and one episode of the good life and compare and contrast. Yeah, that's a good idea. So we'll be... Anyway. We'll be doing that in our off time. <laughs> <laughs> Some other time. But listen, we need to get started on our whiz through the Tom, ba- Tom Baker and the Leela years. All right, so setting all the right. stage... Coming right off his solo companionless adventure on Gallifrey, the deadly assassin. He is a deadly assassin. 
the production team of Holmes and Hinchcliffe decide that Louise Jameson is the new companion and her debut story is The Face of Evil, The Tribe of the Seventeen and Zoannan. Which is uh, which is a it's a great it's a great debut. I think we've said that. Yeah. And um, I I mean I again as usual I'm just going to repeat myself. But as I've been doing in this rewinding back to my first impressions, um, I was very disappointed that the the likeness of Tom Baker carved in the side of the mountain is so uh, poor. It's still in my opinion that I re- <laughs> I recognise that as being John Pertwee and was very excited that. John Pertwee would be in some ways coming back and then was disappointed to discover that he wasn't and it was supposed to be Tom Baker. Well, it works both ways, too. Kind of does. Yeah, it kind of does. Yeah, it could yeah, have yeah, been. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. But Tom himself is a little tetchy in this story, I think. Well, I think he's had a really, he had a really good time being the hero of his own show mm-hmm. and doesn't want to share it, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, I think so. And it, I think, comes across a little bit in his relationship with Louise throughout this uh, rest of season 14 here. Yeah, and I think when they get into the following season, 15... Mm-hmm. I detect a slight improvement Mm -hmm. in their relationship. Yes. When they went up to Birmingham at Pebble Mill. Right. She confronted him, basically stood up for herself, and uh, Tom backed down, being kind of a bully, I think. And as soon as he meets a little bit of resistance, or quite a bit of resistance, Louise is a formidable actor, he was much more respectful and generous to her on the set. Yeah, he's an unreconstructed male of some kind. And, you know, I don't think he would probably disagree if he were here right now. If he said, you know, yeah, you probably were a bit of a bully. Mm-hmm. But then again, I mean, I think you can temper that by saying, you know, he's he cared a huge amount about the show and right. realized, as, as was completely accurate, that he was the star of the show and he wanted the show to be as good as it possibly could be. And he had his own kind of awesome ideas of how that would happen. And, you know, I can't really blame him. But well done for Louise for, you know, standing up to him. Yeah, yeah, she's amazing. And these two stories, The Face of Evil and The Robots of Death, both written by Chris Boucher under the tutelage of Bob Holmes, you get the idea, or at least I get the idea of what could have been if the transition was a little less abrupt between Hinchcliffe and Williams, if, yeah. if the uh, tutelage of Boucher had continued on under Holmes for another half season or something, you could imagine Boucher being the script editor under a different producer, perhaps David Maloney, right. and seeing where the direction of Doctor Who would go from there, but... Two things happen. Mary Whitehouse, in her reaction to the deadly assassin, got the BBC to more or less fire Hinchcliffe, I would think. Fire-ish. Move him sideways. Mm -hmm. And uh, put him on Williams' project and put Williams on Hinchcliffe's project with the mandate, make it less violent. And at the same time, Blake Seven is in the uh, incubator and Boucher gets picked up by Blake Seven as script editor and... Doesn't have much more work beyond season 15 with Image of the Fendel yeah. in Doctor Who. So you get a you get the sense with Face of Evil and then Robots of Death of what could have been. Yeah, and I think, as we were saying last week, the satire in Deadly Assassin is, is the BBC. Right. It's those mysterious mandarins, Oxbridge Don, Oxbridge graduates at the top of the... The organization that do things that no one understands, and then when you actually do understand why they're doing it, they're doing it for like no reason at all, basically. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think the sad thing when we move from, for me, when we move from season 14 to season 15, and season 14 actually, I mean, having thought about it a little bit while we've been doing this, I think probably season 14 is my favourite of all the seasons. Mm-hmm. It's it's just a, it's, it's uh, even even a slight clunker like Mask of Mandragora, it's still, there's a lot to enjoy in there. Anyway, but it's clear to me that when we get into season 15, the character of Leela becomes less and less useful because I think as introduced here in Face of Evil, she's kind of a hard-hitting Emma Peel-style leather-clad savage. And I think, obviously, they had this um, storyline built out for this kind of Pygmalion concept, right. which when they get to Victorian London is even more the case, even though they don't actually really do that. Mm-hmm. But as we move into that season 15, I mean, season 15, I really find it's not one of my favorite seasons. It's very mm-hmm. kind of uncomfortable because you do get stories commissioned and written under one regime bumping up against the orders that were given to a new regime to kind of lighten the tone a bit. And it just... It starts out amazing and then it just gets kind of weirder and crappier and odder and kind of maybe in kind of interesting ways, but mm-hmm. certainly not as satisfying. And by the time you get to the end of the season with Invasion of Time, it's like, whoa, okay. Right. This isn't going very well, is it? Right. So, in, in my humble opinion. Yeah, with the character of Leela, I think it's ironic that you have such a strong female character that by the time that she's in the towns of Wang Chiang, she, okay, she's running around in her underwear for a few episodes, but she's in, she's out of the skins. Yeah. She's in a dress. She is in traditional earth clothes. But when the series gets redirected by the showrunner Graham Williams or the producer Graham Williams, she's back in her skins. And the Williams era is much better for women actors in general. But the character of Leela, they revert to type. Yeah. And it's disappointing because you see that going from Face of Evil to Horror of Fang Rock, that development of her character. And it's tossed aside when Holmes, yeah. Holmes leaves and Boucher's script with her being in Image of the Fendel, it's almost out of sequence. It should have come in season 14 rather than season 15. Yeah, and I think I think it's kind of instructive. I hadn't actually kind of realized this before, and I think that's a smart observation. You know, she's out of the skins in Wang Chiang, and then in Fang Rock, she's, you know, she's in a lighthouse keeper's. You know, she right. has the, that thick Aaron, you know, roll neck kind of fisherman sweater. So, you know, she's actually starting to dress like a normal human being. Right. And then as soon as we get into kind of deep space right. and the invisible enemy, it's like, bam, okay, you'll get back in your leathery dress again. Right. Which is a shame, really. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, she looks, you know, to be an unreconstructed Tom Baker style male for a second. She looks <laughs> fabulous in a leathery dress. Yes. But that's really not the point of her character, to be honest. Um, it wasn't, you know, no. And it never really was. I mean, she was in a leathery dress, I really feel, to begin with, because she was from a savage tribal colony where they all they had to make clothes out was hoarder skins mm-hmm. yeah and it's a, it's a shame it's a shame and i think again you know you go from something that's amazing like horror fang rock which is this great drawing room murder mystery and then you have visible enemy which is this kind of nutsoid kind of you know bristol boy fantasy yeah yeah sort of i mean taking from movies like obviously hinchcliffe and holmes had done but just i don't know um <laughs> 
<laughs> it's a weird one. And then you get Image of the Fendal. And I, and, I, and I can remember at the time with the first episode of Image of the Fendal kind of punching the egg. I'm like, yes, we're back in occult mm-hmm. space devil worshipping stuff and then but it sort of goes off sort of half cocked yeah and doesn't have that hard edge grittiness that i'd had so much enjoyed with the previous season Sunmakers went completely over my head i hated it at the time right. i like it a lot more now um so you know it's it's a very very uneven season yeah. especially compared to the the awesome unevenness of the previous season which is you have two episodes with a beloved companion, the beloved companion leaves, you have a solo Doctor episode, and then you have a run of kind of three completely hard-hitting classics, which are classics because, you know, they're spending some money at last, right. you know, even though it's 1977 and there isn't any money. Right. And, you know, they've got great scripts, they've got a great script editor, they've got great actors, they've got great directors with Wang Chiang, whatever you think about Wang Chiang in general, and again, as I think we've said before, um, if the BBC can do anything, they can do the Victorian era. And so it's super smart Mm -hmm. to set it, you know, in Victorian London, because all the sets are there, all the costumes are there, you know, etc, etc, etc. Right. And if we go look at Wang Chiang specifically, Tom really rises to that role of the Doctor in that season finale. Yeah. The Tom Baker Doctor is often seen as tooth and curls, the scarf, the hat, that type of bit, but he's not wearing the scarf. He's not wearing the hat. He isn't all teeth and curls in Towns of Wang Shang. It's a serious, pulpy, fictional story, a Sherlock Holmes, uh, Fu Manchu adventure, and he, as an actor, recognizes it and steps right into the role. And I think that plays off, or it shows what Tom does, just like with The Deadly Assassin did, where it's fitting this niche of the Manchurian candidate, but then yet meets the prisoner. It's very Patrick McGuhan style drama. And you see the same type of range where you have Tom doing a historical drama, being Sherlock Holmes in this uh, pulp fictional environment of Wang Chiang. It's almost as if in some ways what they're doing is they're giving Tom kind of different different genre characters to doctorize which is yeah. again super smart because you know he's a good i mean it's I, it's funny i mean you know i think the cliche about tom baker is that you know the, the the doctor is tom baker and tom baker is the doctor but he is a good actor right and when we get to his final season which has got to be a low point a low point for me what I don't like about that final season, it seems to me what he's being told to do at that point is be the doctor. Hmm. And I don't think actually that's something that he finds very stimulating. Right. Um, to me, what gets Tom Baker going is this is your character, which is you, the doctor. And this is a story where the doctor does this kind of thing, which is a piece of genre for you to work in. I mean, when he's with Lala Ward, you know, it brings out the kind of comedy in him with uh, uh I'm, I'm kind of extemporizing a little bit here but you know with um with mary tam there's the kind of serialized uh, nature of that season so anyway mm-hmm. i mean that's my that's my kind of tom theory yeah well i think it's at this point in season 14 he is the show and he is a big star and yeah he is a big star you know, he's he's at the colony room and that's his life he carries around his toothbrush and he may not know where he's gonna bed for the night but he is the big man on television. He has, you know, he's commanding audience. The, the audience size for Deadly Assassin was over 
you know, for part three was 13 million viewers, yeah, which is, which is huge for November, 1976, uh, audience yeah. in the UK and robots of death got over 13 million viewers too. So he is a household figure and he's, he is the show. He's bigger than, he's bigger than Dr. Who has ever been. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I think it was pretty disruptive to yank out Hinchcliffe and stick in Williams and you toy it up effectively you give him K9 you don't have the progression of a character with Leela where you're going to have the educating of Leela you forget all that you throw all that away and it's just uh, leather and skins, and yeah. you ham-fisted marry her off because you, you couldn't believe that your uh, lead actress didn't want to stay around for this. Yeah, because she was nothing to do. Louise Jameson is a, you know, she is a great actor, um, mm-hmm. and she's been in some really great, she's created some amazing characters on the television. Right. And just right. to tell her, so you just got to hang around with Tom dressed in a leather skirt for the next four or five years, she's like... Screw this! I'm, I'm right. going. I'm going to go away. Shakespeare. I'm going to do. I'm going to do Shakespeare. I'm going to do Tenko. I'm going right. to do the Amiga Factor. You know, I can actually do things. I'm not just a pretty face, right? Or I'm not just a mm-hmm. leather-clad body. And she's had a great career, unlike many companion actors coming out of Doctor Who. She fought and got her roles to further her career, and she's a very respected actor. Yeah, yeah. You know, obviously, Graham Williams is a relatively tragic figure. He is. Especially when you, you know, well, obviously tragic figure because he killed himself. But as much as one has kind of sympathy for him, you know, and, and again, you know, he's caught between wanting to do a good show and these Time Lords at the top of the BBC who are just <laughs> kind of, you know, revolving around in mysterious ways that no one can quite fathom and they all went to public school in Oxbridge and he didn't. Mm-hmm. He's got a difficult job, but it's not, it's not what I wanted when I was watching Doctor Who. Right. And unfortunately it's the reason why I think season 15 is a difficult season for me is this is when I started to fall out, started to fall out of love with the show. I mean, I, mm. I still had a lot of love to give, but this is when you know, I started to think like, Whoa, okay, hang on. I'm not really enjoying it that much. The problem is amplified by the lack of money, too, and the yeah. rampant inflation in 19, yep. late 1977, early 1978. It really shows by the end of Invasion of Time that the production team has run out of money and they weren't done a great service with uh, Hinchcliffe departing, uh, spending the seed money for yeah. I mean, <laughs> on basic, Town to Wang Chiang. Exactly. So. I mean, basically doing a classic serial with monsters. Right. I think the classic serial, you know, that was a, we've talked about classic serial, that was a, you know, that was the kind of marquee piece of drama for, mm-hmm. for the BBC at that time. And so it always had a lot of money spent on it. You Not only you're spending classic serial money, you're adding in giant rats and phantoms living underneath the sea. You're adding a lot of more money to that instead right. of just, you know, it's just Charles Dickens walking about. Right. You're building a, a dragon that shoots lasers out of its Yeah, laser, laser arm shooting dragon. You've got like a homicidal uh, ventriloquist dummy, right. you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And see, I mean, nowadays, you know, I can watch Underworld and I can mm-hmm. watch Invasion of Time and I really enjoy those. Right. I have a huge soft spot for underworld because i think it's just ridiculously over over ambitious <laughs> the quest we is the quest <laughs> we, can, we can do this all we can do this all with them um, with, with primary key yeah, yeah come on 
you know, which I think is great. Because, of course, you know, as I think I've, as, as I have also said before, it's the precursor to like all those ridiculous Marvel movies where everybody is just acting in front of a green screen. Right. So I can enjoy that now and I can enjoy the invasion of time with, you know, Derek Gedman, silly Sontaran and the TARDIS <laughs> being an old abandoned hospital and Sontaran is tripping over deck chairs and the Vardens twinkling around. There's a lot of kind of camp silliness to enjoy there. But, you know, as a relatively serious 11 year old, I didn't care for it at all. Mm-hmm. I came at it as a relatively serious 12-year-old, and I loved K-9, like I, I mentioned way back I hated when. I K-9. hated K-9. Ah! Anyway, yeah. Yeah, I loved K-9, and the cheapness didn't really show itself to me on that first few watchings of it. It isn't until more of a jaded late teen eye that you start seeing that, hmm... You know, there's something that looks different about the underworld than any other Doctor Who, and I wonder why that is. And Right, right. And, hmm, the TARDIS is kind of low rent when you think about it, and when you go into the invasion of time, and the bits bits like that, or even the Doctor's boot cupboard in Mask of Mandragora is just a picture. There are shortcuts that are being taken that influence you as you get more discerning as a viewer rather than right. it's just an entertainment show for uh, young people. Right. And right. I have a soft spot for the Williams era. I really like the next season, the key to time season. Key to time season. That, that is a good season. And mm-hmm. I mean, we'll obviously be talking about it in greater detail in subsequent weeks. Um, yep. you know, there's a distinct falling off the cliff with the, with the, with the final six parters there so often is, right. but it's, yeah, no, it's, it's, that's a, that's a mm-hmm. good season. That's but a good season. I liked what they were doing with K9. K9, again, perhaps wasn't the best choice when you're the producer to have this expensive non-functioning remote control prop when your budgets are really tight. It's, <laughs> and to add a ghost cast member with uh, John Leeson, being a voice of K9. You're changing the show. Yes, you're making it maybe more kid-friendly. You have the toy dog there, the robot dog. But the season 15 from the height that was season 14 is really kind of a letdown. I don't think there's a bigger drop in storytelling production value and story quality than there was from season 14 to season 15. There's a couple of things I'll say there, one of which obviously, you know, they didn't learn because Hello Chameleon in the 80s. Um, hmm. The production team never learns that anything that's robotic even is, is, <laughs> is not going to work. But I think the money thing is interesting because, you know, you start out the season with Horror of Fang Rock, which is, you know, a ridiculously cheap episode. You've got three sets. It's a, it's pretty much a bottle. You know, it's a, as I said, it's a drawing room. You know, it's a, it's a, it's, I guess Robots of Death was Agatha Christie. This is even more Agatha Christie. You know, it's a, like, it's a locked room mystery. Right. You know, who did it? Right. And you end up with everyone dead apart from, you know, our, our, our heroes. And it's a, you know, it's a great example of actually you can do this show super cheaply and it actually will end up being awesome. I think some of the problem with the, with the Williams era is that, it becomes way too ambitious. It's it keeps it keeps mm. on trying to be, you know, Thunderbirds and Flash Gordon and it keeps thinking it's got a lot more money than it really has. And again, you know, I I've never produced a TV show. 
though, you know, I do things that are roughly analogous, I'll have to say, in, in that I produce expensive art exhibitions. So, you know, I, so I actually, in some ways, I actually, I do think I, in some ways, I am actually qualified to criticise Graham Williams. Is he really got to, OK, how much money have we got? What do we want to do? How do those two things fit together? Well, the last thing mm-hmm. you do is you go out and go, OK, we want to do this and, you know, we'll just make the money work. Because the money, right. the money is what drives everything. And if you don't have the money, mm-hmm. it is not going to work. And you can try as hard mm-hmm. as you can, but it's not going to work right. And you can have a great script. Though I'll have to say, you know, um, something like Invasion of Time is not a great script. But then, you know, they we all know that, you know, <laughs> they were handed the thing with the cats and that wasn't going to work and right. blah, 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 blah. Right. One thought, actually, though, on K-9 is that, I mean, the ironic thing about K-9, as I said, you know, I, I'm, I'm never going to agree that K-9 is a good thing. But I think it is kind of interesting that in, in the introduction of John Leeson, you had an actor who is not really present on the screen at all. He's right. a voice actor. And, and I think actually, in some ways, it's obvious, again, reading the, you know, that John Leeson and Tom Baker hit it off like immediately and had a great relationship, mm-hmm. you know, doing the Times crossword together, blah, 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 blah. Tom wasn't threatened by John at all because he wasn't on screen. He's not overshadowing. You know, he's almost like the talking cabbage on my shoulder, which is the classic Tom Baker comment of his perfect companion. Right. And you can actually see Tom far more relating to the canine character than he was to Louise Jameson in some ways. Yeah, um, yeah. And again, if you look through these seasons with Tom Baker and you think, okay, you know, why did the guy stay for such a long time? Well, obviously his massive insecurities and that made him be this character for probably longer than he should have done. Uh, but mm-hmm. each season, it seems to me there's another reason why he's staying on. And I would argue in some ways... Perhaps this, perhaps this season is it's John Leeson. Yeah, it's like whoa, this is this this new guy that I'm acting with, and you don't feel threatened by him, but I also really really like him as a person. So yeah, I'll right. I'll, I'll I'll stay on for a bit longer then. Yeah, it's like him and Ian Martyr previously of Harry Sullivan. Exactly, it was a mate to hang out with. It wasn't the leading lady where yeah things might get awkward or she's competing for screen time and fan affection it's what better than have it as a tin dog where it's the dog it's not the actor that's getting the attention and k9 was always breaking down and baker really hated k9 and working with k9 because he's always on his knees right uh, you know really hard to compose shots etc but like you said he got along really well with leeson it's almost as if leeson smoothed over was there to help smooth over the roughness in some ways between Jameson and uh, Baker. Yeah, you get the idea that, you know, Leeson is, I don't know, you get thoroughbred horses. And if you got horses in the field, you always add in a donkey because the donkey like always kind of calms <laughs> horses down. I don't know where I've got that piece of info. I think that's true. Please write in if I'm incorrect about that. It seems like, it seems like, you know, that John Leeson canine is, John Leeson is the kind of the donkey, that kind of graphite rod that kind of, you know, just brings down the the thermonuclear reaction that is all that is <laughs> always potentially going to erupt with Tom Baker. 
Um, mm-hmm. And again, you know, then I'm warming to my theme. You go into Key to Time and Tom is excited because, you know, it's a one story that runs through the whole season. Mm-hmm. And then you get into season 17 and then his girlfriend, so you know, Lala, my, right. my girlfriend turns up. He's well, it's not yeah. his girlfriend at that point. But, you know, oh, this is someone who I really fancy and she really fancies me. This is awesome. So, again, you can see almost how he's kind of lured in to keep on playing this character. So that's an interesting perspective. If K9 wasn't there, if if we didn't have the invisible enemy and K9 didn't make his debut, do you think Tom would have left after the invasion of time because here's a show where he probably wasn't having too much fun under the new regime of Williams. He wasn't getting along with Louise at least at the beginning of season 14. Invisible Enemy was the first one in production. It wasn't until the second story, Fang Rock in production, that they uh, aired their grievances. I could conceive of uh, Tom leaving after the end of season 15, if it wasn't for Leeson, perhaps. Possible, although I would say, again, I mean, I think, you know, Tom does have this, uh, obviously, I think then, I think he's better, obviously better now, but, you yes, know, yes. I mean, he did massive, massively insecure about all, a lot of aspects of his life. And I think the other thing that Doctor Who gave him, other than kind of interesting things to do, is, you know, it gave him a status and a security, you know, job security, which I think, as we've said before, is kind of important in those days for actors, not so important nowadays for actors at this show's level. But, you know, it gave him it gave him a sense of self-worth that he may have been lacking in his kind of everyday life. Right. It certainly gave him walking around money so he could buy a few rounds at the colony room, etc. Yeah. Yeah. You know, he could keep himself in, you know, triple whiskeys mm-hmm. and pints of beer and a bag of chips um, yep. and yep. whatever else he was consuming at that particular point. Yeah. Uh, you know, he's a, you know, he was a, he's a bohemian, you know, he always was. And I think, you know, he always still is, you know, he's an eccentric bohemian fellow. I don't think he ever really needed large sums of money, but what he did need is he needed people to love him. And this show provided both. Well, probably not large sums of money, but certainly but kept enough, them flush. Exactly. Enough money to, I mean, I, I don't know who, where he was living or who he's living with. I'll have to pull out his autobiography, however accurate one might think that is. <laughs> um, but, you know, it gave him enough money to pay rent in his flat in Bayswater. And, uh, you know, it said, you know, buy, the, buy all the booze he needed. But it gave him someone to be, you know. And, right. and I think... I think I think that was important, and mm-hmm. a lot of a lot of actors. Is, and I think you know, again, without massively psychoanalyzing per, someone that I don't know, to me also that's part of the threat of Louise Jameson. You know, who he, I think he saw as possibly a better actor than him, hmm. um, and someone who was better put together than him, and someone who had more opportunities to do awesome acting jobs than he had or will have. And I think he was threatened by her character. I also said, I also would say possibly he was threatened by, he was threatened by her like full stop period as, as someone who is, who, who had the potential to have a greater career than he was having. Hmm. Potentially. Potentially. I mean, obviously that wasn't happening at the time, but I think he possibly was able to recognize that this is someone who was obviously not a direct competitor to him, but not the kind of, um, well, not the kind of friend um, and yeah, this, I guess this is being mean about about Liz Slayton, but not the kind of friend and lesser actor than Louise Jameson. 
So the thing that Liz had the advantage over Tom was that she used old guard. She came in. She was the established companion, yep. and true, then Tom true. came in, and she knew the ropes, and she she and Courtney kind of ruled the roost. It was uh, Martyr. Even Martyr had worked on the show beforehand. Tom was the new boy on the street, so he deferred, and he wasn't the big ego. Well, he probably was the big ego, but it, it he didn't know how big of a success he was until later in season 12 and the filming of it and recording of it. Right. So it's losing that grounding of, okay, Liz is old guard. She knows how this runs. She's obviously in for the success of the story. You get a, a new young actor she's half the age of Tom and she's an amazing actor. When you watch her, just her stage presence, even when she doesn't have lines, she commands a presence. And Liz doesn't do that. She, she's there for her line. She's there for her emotion. But like when they do cutaways to Liz reacting to things like in Ark in Space, it's definitely acting. You don't get that sense that uh, with Jameson that she does it. She, she makes Leela seem like a natural person and her movements are natural. And she just has this presence that, like you said, maybe Tom felt threatened by, uh, maybe even subconsciously. Yeah. And I think, you know, obviously actors, good actors, and Tom is a good actor, you know, they have an empathy, you know, they can detect things that, you know, normal people can't detect. And, I, and I'm not saying that Louise was, like, deliberately, you know, and competitive to him. Yeah. Because she was young. And, you know, I think she said how she felt. She actually was, she was seriously frightened of him and felt yeah. very intimidated. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that he wasn't able to recognize the difference in her creation of a character than, than Liz had. And I think, right. you know, what, of course, is, I think is true is that Liz Sladen had a relative... You know, again, I'm, I'm, I'm saying things that are, that are easy, that things that I've never had to do myself. But you know, I would, you know, in some ways, you could say, well, Liz Slade had a relatively easy job. All she had to be was like a normal human woman of the mid 1970s. You know, yes, she's having amazing adventures, but she, she doesn't have to be anything else other than someone that you know. Louise Jameson had to create a character who was like, you know, a space tribes lady from outer space from the space year one million or something you know she had to make that character work Mm -hmm. and that's a tough job because leela is a real person um, Mm -hmm. and and she creates a real character she could have just been you know she could have been rackle welsh in you know one million years bc (laughs) just like you know wandering around in a in a in a leather bikini you know just Uh saying just saying words right but she actually makes this character completely believable Mm-hmm. Yes, indeed. And the big difference, the added burden or difficulty for Jameson was she's in this leotard, this leather costume that even when you put Liz in a swimsuit, Liz's swimsuit in Death of the Daleks, it's, yeah. it has it has more coverage than Leela's uh, skin leotard uh, dress that she's wearing at the beginning of her time and definitely the revised second skins uniform or costume that she has in Invisible Enemy in uh, later serials. Yeah, and I think, again, we've said this before, I mean, I think Liz and Tom, it's a very chaste relationship. One of the things that I really connected with them is they were like myself and my sister playing games. They were kids playing. As soon as you give the Doctor a companion who is completely sexualized, like Leela, like Louise Jameson had to deal with, i.e. here am I in my leather miniskirt, 
Right. You have a very different character and you have a very different relationship between the viewer and the character and the doctor and that character as well. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, obviously there's no indication that there was any kind of sexual relationship between the doctor mm. and Leela. Why would there be? But Leela is obviously, she's a sexy character. She's presented yes. as being sexy in a way that Liz Layden was never presented as being sexy ever. Um, <laughs> even though she is kind of sexy. Yeah, she is. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, there's a big difference in there. And it's kind of funny that uh, what happens with the show, you have maybe peak violence in the eyes of Mary Whitehouse with Deadly Assassin. You move to peak sexiness with Leela in Face of Evil, Robots of Death. And you get rid of the violence because the violence is definitely toned down in terms of uh, uh, explicitness and uh, seriousness in season 15, but you keep the sex. Leela effectively is in street clothes and a sweater at the beginning of season 15. She's back in the leotard and you revise the costume, you redesign the costume to make it even more revealing uh, in the middle of the series. So Williams did gravitate onto that as one of the... uh, pegs that he was gonna hang season 15 on and i think he was scrambling to find some center for it he he uh with holmes leaving i think the whole uh pygmalion bit of educating leela just flew out the door and tony reed uh, i didn't pick it up i think he didn't get what was going on with doctor who there was too much of an abrupt change and too too much of the Time Lords at the BBC, as you say, uh, putting their thumb on the scale and telling them what they had to do and yeah. not giving them the money to to do it. Because, you know, just thinking of, of Fendal, I mean, obviously with um, Invisible Enemy, yeah, yeah, it's in space. Everyone is wearing weird clothes. I, I guess Leela can wear a leather miniskirt as usual. That's mm. fine. But with Image of the Fendal, it makes so little sense that that's mm-hmm. what she's wearing. I mean, really... Right. Um. It's like, why doesn't anyone point out? Like, why, why is your friend wearing mm-hmm. those clothes? No one mm-hmm. says that. And I think that's sort of what I mean when Fendal sort of has all the kind of awesome parts ready to go, but it's just they're not interested in making it awesome. Mm-hmm. I always get the feeling a little bit with with this season, um, with season fifteen, is they're just trying to get through it. Yeah, I think they were. I think literally they were just trying to hang on. I wouldn't have, yeah, they were. Exactly. Yeah, they were. Okay, we, if we can just get through this season, then maybe we'll still all have jobs. Uh-huh. We can reset. We can do our season arc and key to time. Just let's not get fired. Let's, the, right. the main thing here is let's not get fired. Let's get something on the air for Saturday tea time and yep. we're, we're good to go. Let's listen to Uncle Terry and it's all about getting, it's all about not having dead air at mm-hmm. half past five on a Saturday evening. Yeah. So you look at the blame, and I know I heaped a lot of blame on Leela's direction with Williams, but you look at the writers in there. You have Boucher, who is Mm. effectively the creator of Leela, her first two outings. She's written very empathetically and well in Image of the Fendel, but there's not this education. There's not this uh, development of her. Bob Holmes, who kind of the chaperone, the guiding idea behind Leela as the script editor, writes his own script, his farewell script in The Sunmakers. There's none of that going on, and she is uh, 
not treated very well in there at all. And there's lines in there with uh, the rebel woman whose name escapes me right now, but she's admiring Leela's skin. So that's definitely scripted in part of the direction. So even though you have two two of the writers that were part of this uh, genesis of the Leela character, they let the sides down by not creating a story where she is doing that. They don't have her in normal 20th century or period clothing for either of those and these men effectively really let down this character yeah and i don't know maybe it was hinchcliffe maybe it was just removing hinchcliffe and his vision that caused it all to go uh, belly up well i think you know as, as, as amazing as bob holmes was as a writer and as a creator of awesome doctor who drama he had a you know relatively small number of ideas, and as much as I love Sunmakers now, you do get the impression it's like okay, I've got to do another Doctor Who series now. I know I hate paying taxes. Okay, this <laughs> is okay. I've got the idea now. It's going to be about me not liking paying taxes, right? And uh, Leela, I don't know. Let's tie her to the railway track. Let's steamer. <laughs> it's a it's a woman. She's a damsel in distress. Okay, right. she's in distress. Let's put her in the steamer. You know, I, I I burnt my hand on the kettle this morning when I was making a cup of instant coffee. <laughs> Ow! Like, ooh, ooh, getting steamed must really hurt. Right, that's what's going to happen to Leela. You know, it's really nicely written and, you know, it's well-performed. It's a fun story, but, you know, it is kind of like, okay, I may have run out of ideas at this point. And I think when they, when they bring Bob back in the 80s, which I think was a big mistake, um, <laughs> the fact that he'd run out of ideas is like, yeah, he's run out of ideas. Yeah. Yeah. I I I like the jadedness of Bob Holm as the writer for going from the Ark in Space through the Sunmakers where you have the indomitable humanity and then it's just your death and taxes on Pluto. Yeah, it's, it's, an, it's an arc of it's an arc of kind of sourness, isn't it? Right, it's, right. Yeah, yeah. But it doesn't do Leela any great shakes and this turmoil of 15, season 15, I think Tom has his moments of brilliance in it. I think he's really great in Horror of Fang Rock. I think he has some great moments in The Sunmakers. Even in Invasion of Time, with just playing over the top with Barusa and the lead room with the keys on the walls, etc. He does this insanity really well. It's a, it's a performance that we haven't seen from him on Doctor Who. It's more of his Rasputin-type character role. Right. But there's not much going on story-wise. And I think you're right in the assessment of the production team is, we just got to get through this. Yeah. We can regroup, yeah. but there's no money. We don't know if the show... Well, we know if the show's coming back, but we don't know if we're coming back. Uh, no, yeah, we could get sacked like they sacked the last lot. Right. Um, it's, it's a big it's a big mess. And they do get a yeah. reset in season 16, which we'll talk about next time. But season 15, the wheels come off the bus. Everything just kind of goes yeah. by the end of the season. Yeah, and I think, you know, again, we will cover this next time, but I think the key to time, like, William's like, yes, okay. I've got an idea. This is how we're going to mm-hmm. do this season. Mm-hmm. 
the season after that, it's like, okay, yeah, our main character's got someone that he really likes to work with. Okay, that, and it's, it's, and he, you can see the confidence right. start to rise. <laughs> Unfortunately, the budgets aren't rising with to match the confidence. And well, that's, that's the same problem yeah, that we have yeah. in season 15, season 16, season 17 is the perpetual running out of money. And I don't fault Williams for being ambitious and wanting to tell these great stories, but... There are trade-offs in that, and the trade-off is the creativity and the great story is diminished when you don't have the sufficient funds to execute upon them. Yes, and I think this goes back to what I do in my day job, is that it's all about the money. If you don't have the money to do a project, you can't do that project. You've got to do something else. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, you know, the show... It set itself a high bar of what things should look like, not only, you know, in the previous seasons with Hinchcliffe and Holmes spending money like water, but also with (laughs) the expectations, the show itself, it's a space show. It's always going to be expensive. And again, I think the Time Lords at the top of the BBC were like, you know, it's a space show. Those things aren't expensive. Um, what's expensive is is another adaptation of, of Oliver Twist. Right. That's an expensive show. The show set in space is a cheap show, which is obviously nonsense. There's there's no cheap shows to make. Uh, the reality TV is the only cheap show to make. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that was sadly, it was pre, pre-reality pre TV. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, anyway. It's, it's good. Yeah. Good that we didn't have reality TV in the 70s, I think. It is good. It is good. And, you know, if... <laughs> Cheapness can make amazing things happen, like like horror Fang Rock, yes. uh, and it can force can force creativity on you. You look at that creativity. You look at who wrote horror Fang Rock. This is Terrence Dix. He was the script editor for the bulk of the Barry Letts era, bulk of the Third Doctor era. He knows how to stretch the dollar. He knows how to write for this drama. He's also a man who doesn't really appear to ever run out of ideas. Mm. Um, He may repeat ideas mm-hmm. or themes or things he's interested in. But unlike, uh, and I think, you know, he's probably more of a hack than Bob Holmes was, mm-hmm. you know. Um, I think Bob Holmes was like, this has got to be good. I can't just repeat something that I've done before. I've got to come up with something new. Terence Dix was like, yeah, I'm just, I'll just tell that story again, only slightly differently. He's very nation-esque. He's nation-esque, <laughs> yeah, in a good way, in a good way. Yeah. Lo- it's, it's, a, it's, a terry, it's a terry quality. Yeah, yeah, I wish I'd met, I wish I'd met Terence Dix. It seems like a, such, an interesting, such an interesting person, but I never mm-hmm. did. Oh, well. So, all in all, it's the best of times and it's the worst of times, effectively. Yep, yep, yep. (laughs) Would you rate uh, season 15 higher or lower than season 17? I don't know. I don't don't really know. I mean, this is is not a pleasing season to me. Mm -hmm. Doctor Who gets less and less pleasing when I was a first watcher. Uh And I can't rid myself of that residual unhappiness yeah how about you i think i'd rather watch louise than uh, lala so even though we have the really classic city of death i think i'd trade it for horror fang rock and maybe even Sunmakers. definitely for horror fang rock horror fang rock is one of my top all-time who's yeah you're right you're right as much as obviously lala ward is a good person i don't care for her character as romana i'm Mm -hmm. afraid Give me Mary Tam. Give me Mary Tam any day. I'm a I'm a big Mary Mary Tam. And there's another there's another person you know who was clearly like this sucks. I'm an actor. I'm reduced to the status of a 
of a bum. Sorry, that's me quoting um, with no an eye there. Um, you know, I'm an actor. What the <laughs> hell am I doing in this show? Mm-hmm. They said this would be a great character, and it's not. All right, I'm off. You know, so, yeah. you know, she yeah. basically does a Louise Jameson. But we can talk about yeah. that next week. Yep. Oh, the one thing I... I, I uh... <laughs> Uh, since you mentioned with nail and I, the the guy who played the president of Gallifrey, uh, Llewellyn Reese, mm. he was in with nail and I. What was he in with nail and I? He was the shopkeeper. The shopkeeper. Do you remember the shopkeeper in with nail and I? Um, you mean the in the in the tea, the tea shop in, proprietor in, in the in the Penrith tea rooms? That, that yeah yeah. No way. Yeah. Miss B- <laughs> so Miss in- call the police. <laughs> so I think if you make with nail and I Doctor Who canon because it has two doctors in it, it does. It, you also have the president of Gallifrey in there. You could do kind of a Professor Kenotis, where the teep shop proprietor is the president of Gallifrey. Yeah. It, anyways, big big tangent. Wow. There. I I had I I I'm I'm big fans of both of those things, Doctor Who and. Um, with Nell and I, and I had never realized that before. Yeah, that is amazing. Yeah, you got the iconic yeah. Richard E. Grant. You have the yeah. indomitable Paul McGann and the uh, president of Gallifrey, Llewellyn Reese. So, well, there you go. Yeah. Ah, interesting. Anyways, so any final thoughts on the tail end of season fourteen and season fifteen? No, I think I think we've covered it pretty closely, to be honest. Yeah, there's a kind of a, a zigzag through the. Late 76, early 77, but uh, we got there in the end. Yeah, I think we did. I think we did. All right. Well, I think that wraps it up for me. I've been talking with Ben on end of season 14 and season 15. And I've been talking with David about exactly the same thing. Farewell. Thank you for listening to the Metabilis 2 podcast. You can reach us with email at metabilis2, that's a number two, at gmail.com or on Twitter at metabilis2. And again, that's a number two. Hope to hear from you. Bye.